1: We just had... Uh, Hi, Matt! Oh, Stuart's Stewart, uh, here, Paul. <laughs> uh, Stuart's here. Everything that was feels horrible. right again. Yeah, that was, I, I think for the audience, uh, Stuart hasn't recorded with us in something like eight weeks since uh, the start of COVID, and we're re- recording this. It's called COVID
0: It's called COVID Oculus. Yes. Yeah,
1: so we're recording this gotta at get it the right. end of, or I guess, mid, uh, mid-May, and Stuart hasn't been with us since, like, basically mid-March. It's been a long time. Yeah. Uh, so welcome back, Stuart. Thank you. Tonight on the show, we're talking about interstitial lung disease with returning guest Aaron Nareski, Dr. Aaron Noreski. Paul, can you tell people what do we do on this show and then tell them about our wonderful guest?
2: Happy to, as always, Matt. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And what an expert interview we have today. I am thrilled to introduce... Um, Again, uh, our excellent guest, Dr. Aaron Noreski. She is an assistant professor of thoracic medicine and surgery at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University and a proud associate program director for the internal medicine residency program at Temple University Hospital. Dr. Noreski completed her internal medicine residency and a pulmonary critical care fellowship at Temple, where she also served as a chief fellow. Dr. Noreski serves in the American Thoracic Society's Medical Education Committee, serves as a unit based medical director, and has authored eight chapters in pulmonary medicine textbooks. She's been the recipient of numerous teaching awards, including the Outstanding Intensive Care Faculty Educator Award, times two, and the overall Outstanding Faculty Educator Award. Dr. Noreski is involved with clinical research and a part of multiple ongoing research projects, including as a co investigator of clinical trials, introducing novel management strategies for ILD and other pulmonary diseases. And she has given presentations at both local and international conferences. So rather than continuing to sing her praises, we're going to move on and talk to Dr. Noreski. Hey. Hey, hey, Paul, i got a question for you.
0: How do you know if a down pillow is made of duck feathers? I,
2: I, you know, you're going to tell me no matter what I say, right?
0: <laughs> That's correct. You can put it on the bill.
2: That's not bad. Not bad.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Aaron, we are so excited to have you on the show. I know you've been on the show before, but you were one of many guests. Now we really want to get to know you. So could you tell the audience a one-liner about yourself?
3: Oh, I specialize in problem representation. I'm a 36-year-old medical educator and a pulmonologist, and I specialize in taking a very carefully prompted medical history. Um, I play electric guitar, but I'm not very good. Um, Mm. I collect all kinds of fossils, and I endorse every one of Paul's bad movie and book recommendations sight unseen. I'm even going to give you one if you ask me for a hot take. (laughs) What is it? You you are skipping ahead, Stuart.
0: I know I'm skipping ahead
1: because I just can't wait. That's what he does. We just got to go with it.
3: Uh, my, oh, my hot take or the, the pick of the week would be a terrible horror show that I'm watching on FX, which is called The Strain. It is really scary. I can't watch it with the lights off. And it's a vampire story for the modern age. And it stars a CDC epidemiologist who's like passably realistic as a doctor.
1: <laughs> is that nice. the Guillermo del Toro?
3: That's yes, exactly it's right. Guillermo yeah. del Toro. Oh. <laughs> it's just as bad as you can imagine.
0: <laughs> I've got plenty of time to watch stuff now. Me by watch it.
3: <laughs> yeah. We'll uh, keep you up at night, though, so watch out.
1: Paul, I- I'm sure there's things you've always wanted to ask Aaron. You've known her for a very sure. long time.
2: <laughs> and this is finally my chance while it's being recorded. Good. Quick story. So I made my wife finally watch Midsummer, and there was an incredibly graphic scene towards the end. She's like, You realize that you're just, you." this is a recommendation that you made to. Like the world, and I- *Midsummer*. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, sorry for all my movie recommendations, is what I'm saying here. So well, let's, let's-
3: if I recall correctly, you actually advocated that every person should should read um, uh, what was it, Blood, Mer- *Blood Meridian* by Cormac McCarthy.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, yes. I, so- I can't. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can't say that they would enjoy it, but I still think that they should probably read it. Yeah. <laughs> Which gives me. A, an easy transition. So why don't you give us a book recommendation, um, maybe something kinder than Blood Meridian? No, not necessarily. What, what book should every physician read?
3: Oh, I have a human-specific, physician-specific pick, which is Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Somebody stole David Foster Wallace from me, and I resent it. But Gabriel <laughs> Garcia Marquez is excellent. Um, and it's Love in the Time of Cholera is the one that everybody knows. But the better of them is 100 Years of Solitude, which I think is particularly appropriate in a time when we all need magical realism, when we're all socially distanced and um, feeling disconnected from reality. And it's not just me that says that that's a recommended reading for humans. That's the New York Times.
1: Okay. Mm,
0: for you- <laughs> humans. <laughs> that applies to a lot of us.
1: Yes. Do you find magical realism unsettling? I I feel that it's it's very unsettling. What what is magical realism? I don't even know. It's
3: it's like realistic descriptions of uh, events that you know are occurring only in the mind of the subject that the story is being written about.
1: Okay. It's just <laughs> <laughs> it's weird stuff. You you know it when you see it, Stuart.
0: All right, sure. I mean, I'm I'm exceedingly logical and linear, so I don't know. I, but Stuart,
3: you
1: are also a human
3: that's true
0: that's so that's therefore- true partially.
1: did you have anything else you wanted to ask Erin? i I have some questions for her, but uh yeah,
0: ju- so my favorite one is what is your favorite failure or uh patient complaint um like a like a, if- a patient complained about you, not not mm-hmm. like, oh, I presented with shortness of breath. What did you learn from that specific <laughs> incident <laughs>
3: uh well my my biggest failure was really spectacular. At the end of fellowship, I was planning to go into private practice, actually, in Texas. And I had a quarter-life crisis that was uh, about a ton of things that were going on in my life at that mm. time. And I bailed on the opportunity that I had already signed a contract with, with three days before move date.
0: Nice. I mean, that's yep. not nice. But-
3: I called the. Mo- it was terrible. I called the moving company and canceled on them. I didn't get a refund. I paid for a house in Texas for six months that I never got to live in. Oh, Oh boy. Yeah. I failed spectacularly in guessing what I actually wanted out of life and um, making decisions that were really for me. Mm. And I stumbled backwards into academic medicine and fell face forward into my job. (laughs) (laughs) And it was the best stupid, horrible, badly planned decision I've ever made. Good. Good. Yeah, so I I suppose the moral of the story is it's never too late to decide that you're doing something stupid and bail. It's yeah. horrible for other people, but I'm it's so glad how, that I did it.
0: It's well, funny how applicable that is to my own situation.
1: It it would have yeah. been it would have been horrible if they received a physician who didn't want to be there and wasn't right. committed as well. So, right. yes, there was short-term pain for them, but in the long term, I think you did the right thing for both sides and there's Something called sunk cost fallacy, which is, you know, where you're just like, well, I've already put so much into this. I guess I hate being a lawyer, but I'm just going to tough it out for 30 more years. Like that's. Oh,
0: you have no idea how applicable this is right now.
1: <laughs> oh, no, Stuart. <laughs> Stuart, Stuart, we're going to keep this about Aaron. Uh, yep. But sorry. I, you know, I feel like we got to maybe maybe we'll have a, a socially distanced whiskey after this. There's actually so. a peanut butter whiskey I've been wanting to try. Does anyone? That sounds <laughs> revolting.
2: Yeah, it's so, great, making the whiskey burp all the more heinous. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I think I, this is this might be the 42nd time I brought this up on the show, but it's every so often we'll do a, a general internal medicine career night, and it's people from industry and from private practice and, and public health, and all of them to a person is like this is no way the, the job I intended on doing when I started medical school, and this is not the career I plan on having for myself, but also no person, no question, would do anything differently than what they're doing right now. So it's, it's – not, not an elegant point, but like things tend to work out for the most part, except when they don't. Um, but it's you just have to sort of be agile and kind of accept the, the hand that life lays ahead of you and sort of be a little bit um, proactive when appropriate and, and things will be okay. So I, it's I hard just, to qualify it as a failure other than all the lost money, which I guess is easy for me to say.
3: Yeah, I, I'm just very happy that I was um, strong belatedly enough to make the decision that I needed to make for myself. Because had I made that actual trip three days later and made it to Texas... I would be th- I would be there now. I'm telling you. Once I had arrived, it was going to be over.
0: Well, I tell you, I've been in Texas for many years. I understand.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no getting back. Like once you're in Texas, it is you are committed.
1: Well, I think we have a very special case tonight, and I I'm very fond of uh, the name of this patient. So I think we sh- I should we should get into it. We have a big topic to cover tonight, and I think this is a good place to end. I don't want to try to. Uh, push this off anymore? So, all right. So let's start with Albert Violi. He is his friends call him Al. He is a 65 year old Caucasian male with hypertension, type two diabetes, and history of tobacco use, 15 pack years. He's coming in his primary care doc and saying he's got he's had uh dyspnea and a dry cough. He's had these symptoms at least a couple years. Thinks they're worsening now in the past few months and. He's concerned that he just can't like uh, play games with his grandchildren in the yard. And he's not having symptoms like when he lays down necessarily or, or like waking up short of breath um, and not really making too much sputum, not having pain. But uh, medication wise, you ask him about that. He says he's on metformin, Losartan. He recently retired. He was a, a successful lawyer, very it's successful very lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, in, on physical exam, you notice bibasilar inspiratory crackles, and he looks like he's working a little bit hard to breathe at rest and when he's telling you his story. Yeah. So, so he's got COVID. <laughs> he's got COVID. Yeah, let's let's take let's take the pandemic out of this one, and uh, let's talk about what's your differential diagnosis for this patient with like the subacute to chronic. In this case, I would say it's solidly chronic dyspnea. Can you tell us how you approach it?
3: Well, I know that we're here for an episode about interstitial lung disease, so I think it's incumbent upon me at first to remind everyone that interstitial lung disease is a relatively uncommon cause for dyspnea and that this man has a much higher likelihood of other diagnoses before you get to ILD, but because interstitial lung disease is so serious, you always have to keep it like stuck in the back of your mind as a potential, Um, so you know, initial pulmonary workup for dyspnea is initial workup for just about anything in medicine. And it involves a really detailed history and physical exam that then helps you to determine what tests you may want to order for the man that might help to narrow your differential diagnosis.
1: So the, I think one of the big, big things that we were all hoping to get out of this is when we, when we are, uh, when we are talking about interstitial lung disease, and maybe, maybe this is too soon to ask this question, but like, what are the let's do? Do we want to skip over the workup of shortness of breath, Paul? I feel like we have so much to talk about with ILD, you know, that we should just jump right into it.
2: We I could yeah, spend hours, yeah, <laughs> right. So, yeah, I think a shorter breath episode is, is uh, a 24 hour magnum opus. I think, why don't we from so we're talking about interstitial lung disease. and I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, Matt. Let me, I think I know where you're headed with yeah. this. I think looking at one of the articles. Reading in preparation for this, like interstitial lung disease encompasses over 200 diagnoses. So my first thought is that's too many. <laughs> um, and then I, but I, I think what I would like to know is sort of when you're thinking about ILD as a potential diagnosis or umbrella diagnosis, is there a way that you categorize it or sort of breaking down in your head? Because I think one of the things that I struggle with is the classification, the terminology. So I guess even more basically, fundamentally, what is interstitial lung disease? And then maybe we can sort of take it from there.
3: Awesome. So I know that you're here to ask me a question, but I'd like to ask you guys a question, like a poll the room question. What percentage, you've all heard of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, right? IPF. You've all heard of it. You're nodding your heads. I can tell, right? It, it, how What percentage of interstitial lung disease do you think, without looking anything up, Stuart, is idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis?
1: Go ahead, Stuart.
3: 5%. Oh, Stuart. That's... That's the lowest number I've ever heard.
1: <laughs> I would say, I'll, I'll pick one number. I was going to give a range, but I'll say 20%. Wow,
3: you guys are kind of right on the money. You know, when I ask this question to medical students and, uh, you know, interns and residents, they they always way overestimate the prevalence of idiopathic disease um, in ILD. So ILD is a group of disorders. If there are 200, I don't know what all of them are, just for the record. <laughs> Um, uh, But we can put them into a couple of buckets and we'll go through the buckets in a minute. But I think it's important to talk about what the pulmonary interstitium is because it's kind of a vague idea to a lot of us who graduated medical school more than a decade ago. So it's your basement membrane, your perivascular and perilymphatic tissues, everything, this fibrous and connective tissue that supports the lung and that uh, covers over all of its anatomic pieces, including airways and acinar clusters and everything. So it's the scaffold that holds up your squishy base or your squishy alveolar epithelium and your squishy capillary endothelium. Does that help?
1: Very much. Okay,
3: cool. So ILD falls into a couple buckets and this isn't, an, this is any disease that can impact that part of your anatomy. And I want you to think about how much blood goes through that, uh, goes through your lung constantly. That's all the which blood, all of it, right?
1: <laughs> it's all
3: of it. So any, Systemic disease that you have is, you know, uh, something that can that can impact your lung. So when we think of the buckets of what commonly causes interstitial disease, the most uh, common four are all about 20% prevalence. And they are connective tissue diseases, they are sarcoidosis, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, and then the idiopathic diseases. And then your less common buckets are diseases that are caused by by drugs, so drug-induced uh, interstitial lung disease, occupational lung disease, which in, includes um, you know silicosis and coal workers' pneumonitis, smoking-related ILD, and family familial ILD, which is kind of rare and kind of falls under the category of idiopathic. Also, in a lot of cases, so if you think about it from the buckets instead of thinking about all 200 diseases, then it's much easier. So, whoever said two hundred diseases is counting like every kind of drug-induced pneumonitis, every possible occupational lung disease, every single cause of hypersensitivity pneumonitis. If you got the buckets, you're good.
2: I feel like two hundred is the type of number you throw out there because you think no one's going to really fact check you. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of like saying like there's like thirteen signs of um, of cirrhosis, like thirteen physical examination signs that go on with cirrhosis, and then just trust me on that. Let's just move on. Like I feel like that two hundred number is in that same kind of category. What's I feel the percentage that way too of
3: video- and you see that uh, sentence? There are two hundred possible causes at the top of a whole lot of articles that are written about ILD. And every time I see it, I kind of roll my eyes, like, <laughs> "Oh, come on!" Just trying to make this hard for people.
0: And what percentage of ILD is idiopathic? About twenty. About twenty. All right, good, yeah. good one, Matt. You got it. I'm, I'm happy for you, buddy.
3: <laughs> That's presuming, Stuart, that you did a very good job working up this patient's ILD. Maybe That's in how your I got case 5%. it wouldn't be. Yeah. Oh,
1: <laughs> yeah. So. Is there anything about the history of uh, Mr. Alveoli that is is aside from his name pointing towards think, the wrong part of his lungs? Make <laughs> is me, yeah, his name. That's true, Stuart. That's true. So maybe it's maybe it wasn't a good name. <laughs> uh, what was? So, is there anything about his case that makes you think this might be I, ILD?
3: Well, I mean, he's he's male. He's uh, an older man. So it feels to me like you're trying to set me up for an idiopathic disease here Um, because it's ILD that's uh, caused by idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, a little more male, it's a little more older people, right? So those things make me interested. His history of tobacco use is also interesting. Tobacco use is a risk factor that's independent of other things for the development of ILD.
1: As far as this goes, do you have like a checklist that you go through? Is it just so ingrained or do you have, do you have a checklist that you're going through as you're like taking the history from somebody like this and you're trying to laser in because there's all these potential things that could cause it. And like, do you just straight up start asking, like, do you, do you, how often do you eat microwave popcorn and stuff like that?
3: (laughs) I love that one. That's one of my favorite. That's one of my favorite ones. Um, so you, when you're doing your, you know, your careful history, your prompted symptoms, asking about dyspnea is hard in patients with ILD, because a lot of them will automatically adjust their level of exertion to make up for their dyspnea, and they may not perceive themselves to be dyspneic. So most of your pulmonary diseases, you can use a scoring system that takes into account progressive exertional dyspnea, but For ILD patients, we use a dyspnea 12 questionnaire, which helps to um, get their history without getting so much into the activity-prompted symptoms. Because a lot of your ILD patients will tell you, I just thought I was getting old. You know, I just couldn't do as much as I could do before. Um, Or, you know, we have – we're in America, so – or I thought I was gaining weight, so, you know.
1: What sort of um, questions so, are on this? Dif- the Disney 12 is this something that you could administer? Like you could give it to the patient and come back a couple minutes later, and they fill it out themselves, or do you you go through it with them in the in the office?
3: I'm going to interpret this question a little differently. About okay. This dif- the difficulty of asking all of this of a patient with ILD, because it's a lot to go over in a in a 45 minute new patient office visit. So the American College of Chest Physicians, which is a large organization and Stuart, I know you're gonna Google this as we speak, has a PDF available for free that you can download that goes over um, symptoms and uh, history that's germane to ILD patients and it's a checklist that you can hand to a patient. They also um, you know, they created this using experts, so it really is exhaustive.
2: And is this checklist, I mean the, the one that you're referring to now include sort of symptoms of rheumatologic disease and occupational exposures and all of it or Everything. specific to symptoms. Okay.
3: Everything. It's something you can hand to patients in the waiting room and let them get busy with their number two pencils before you get in there. Um, I will tell you, though, that it flags a lot of false positives because patients see a lot of boxes and they feel the desire to check things. So you'll end up having to ask a lot of particular questions. But when I'm doing a prompted history and I'm not using a questionnaire, I'm going through the buckets, right? All right, let's think about connective tissue disease symptoms have you noticed that you've been having any changes in your skin? Have you noticed any changes in your hair? Have you lost hair? Is your mouth dry? Are your eyes dry? Those kind of questions, that bucket. And then you can move on to the more sarcoid questions. You know, have you been fatigued? Have you had arthropathy? And then move on to connect to the um, questions specifically about uh, exposures that might have exposed them to hypersensitivity pneumonitis. Symptoms specifically to that would be like squeezy or wheezing or squeaking sounds within their chest because it's more of an airway centered disease. Um and they may experience more obstructive symptoms. Um they also you can hit all of the exposures right there when you're in that bucket. You know, have you ever uh lived with a bird? Do you use down products in your home? How old is your house? Have you ever had water damage in your home? You know, uh, what about your workplace? Have you ever worked with anything that you were sanding? Did you ever have to wear PPE in your workplace? Did you, you know, have you worked in construction, all the kind of fields that you might want to hit? Have you ever breathed anything into your lungs that you didn't, you know, get prescribed by a doctor? Drug-induced, it's pretty it's pretty easy prompted history there because there's only a few categories of drugs that we really need to worry about. However, patients don't always know by name, and so I like to kind of give them a little more context as I'm going through this part of the history. So for example, patients exposed to amiodarone, which is a common cause of drug-induced respiratory disease, may not know they received it because they got it in a CCU after they had a cabbage, or in some other clinical context, it didn't know what it was. was. So what I'll ask is, have you ever had a dysrhythmia? Have you ever had cardiac surgery? Have you ever had to take a medicine to uh, deal with a heart rate or rhythm problem? And you'll get amiodarone, dronadarone history from that. Um, Nitrofurantoin is most commonly prescribed for urinary tract infections. It's the most common reason that people develop drug-induced respiratory disease. And patients will tell you, you know, if they have frequent urinary tract infections, but they may not know that the drug that they were taking every time they had one was the cause of their lung disease. Um, have you ever had chemotherapy? Have you ever had radiation? are important ILD questions as well that go for me in that drug-induced bucket exposure induced bucket of things we did to them have you ever taken a medicine that you injected into your belly or got infused through an IV you know that wasn't insulin
1: can i ask about <laughs> the for for things like amio and uh nitrofurantoin, methotrexate, does it have to be chronic exposure? Or can it just occur at any time, even after just like a, a short course of like a seven, five or seven day course of something?
3: That would be unusual, Okay, but not impossible.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. Cause I know. So the more,
3: the more exposure to higher doses of those medicines in particular, the higher the risk of the development of drug-induced respiratory disease.
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think it's the, the beers list, maybe they call, they call for nitrofurantoin. They say like, you know, definitely in the elderly, they recommend not, uh, that's one of the no, no drugs just for at least for chronic, for like chronic use. And I think that might be why, because of the, the drug induced lung disease.
0: So, so all those are really interesting and useful historical clues, but what about the, uh, the old lost art of seeing a patient and putting a stethoscope on them? Are there any, uh, sensitive or specific exam findings I wanted to steal that one from Paul. He always asks it.
3: So the classic the classic exam finding for interstitial lung disease is pulmonary crackles. And I want to challenge you, do you feel confident about what a crackle sounds like?
0: A zipper. <laughs> I
2: don't know. Wait, what? A what zipper zippers are you using? <laughs> z- like z- I don't know. If I, I heard never, that in someone's i ever chest, to a pair of lungs and be like, "Huh, that sounds like" <laughs>
3: If I heard that in someone's chest, I would look for the, for the port to plug them in and charge them with a
1: USB. Yeah. I, this, I'll tell you my workaround. Please tell me, tell me this is wrong and what, what you do. But I like, I feel like the, the Velcro, like kind of dry sounding Velcro-y sound is, is more I associate with like fibrotic or fibrotic lung disease. And then like heart failure crackles tend to sound just like there's some bit of a wet what I've associated as a wet quality, and maybe this is just listening to patients that I knew had either or, and then just trying to be like, okay, that's what IPF sounds like, or that's what ILD sounds like, and this is what heart failure sounds like. But I have no idea if that's evidence based.
0: <laughs> well, it's, yeah. it's 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 your evidence based based on your your own perceived evidence. yeah exactly
3: yeah yeah so so sometimes people will differentiate the crackle of as you're saying a fibrotic or a usual interstitial pneumonia type of interstitial lung disease as being a dry crackle to differentiate it from a wet crackle some pulmonologists will insist that there is crackles which are the sound of interstitial lung disease and the drier sound more like velcro like if you're undoing your your velcro sneakers that you have because you're totally a hashtag sneakerhead <laughs> or and they'll say that that sound is crackles and that the sound of heart failure is rails because it's more of a wet sound as a s- small airways full of fluid so what you're actually hearing with crackles in interstitial lung disease is you're hearing kind of the friction of these um, damaged, alveoli opening and closing
1: and by the Damage way'
3: small airways opening and closing which is
1: very brief ugh. aside the only sneakerhead on this zoom call is Paul Williams <laughs> I,
3: I knew that Paul <laughs> so <laughs> yeah so Any- but the thing the thing to know about this is that you're not going to hear a crackle until that patient has pretty advanced disease so the majority of patients with interstitial lung disease will have a normal chest exam However not all ILD, is a restrictive pattern. Some of it is a restrictive pattern, some of it is obstructive. So you can also sometimes hear wheezes, particularly in things like hypersensitivity pneumonitis or connective tissue disease associated ILD where the small airways may be inflamed.
2: And I would assume that also findings in keeping with right-sided heart failure or pulmonary hypertension, like if you're hearing, you know, pronounced Mm -hmm. P2s or... Uh, feeling a a RV heave, like at at that point, you probably should have made the diagnosis years ago and you've gotten yourself in trouble is kind of the assumption that I'm making.
3: Clubbing is a late finding and all PAH findings are late findings. And if you're finding those things, if your ILD patient walks in with those findings, your hair should stand on end.
1: All right. So we'll be we'll be looking for other, based on, we we talked about the connective tissue disease associated, so we'll be looking for signs of connective tissue disease like rashes and swollen joints and th- things like that. You have Ul- to
3: look in their mouth. You have ulcers. to look at their teeth. You have okay. to look in their eyes. Yeah, these, uh, these are areas that often ne- get neglected. Show me your skin. Can I see your back? You know, because people have things and they don't think that they're significant, particularly in my experience, people with chronic dry mouth. They won't even tell you that, but if you ask them, do you have cavities, do you have oral problems, they'll say, oh my God, yeah, my mouth is a disaster.
1: <laughs> is that what you meant? Did, I think you mentioned tooth erosions. In uh, Yes. tell. Can you tell me where you look for that exactly?
0: On the teeth.
3: That would be, <laughs> the, you, that would be the place. Thank you, Stuart. I figured. Yes.
1: <laughs> is yes, it-
3: people with chronic dry mouth will often have uh, frequent cavities, but they'll also often have gum erosion. So okay. you look in there, it, it's pretty easy to see. If you want to Google some ugly pictures, you can
1: Okay. You can so look you're that up. you're looking Sica at Sika syndrome. You ask can, them to like pull their symptoms. lip down and you look for the gum receding from the teeth at the bottom.
0: Is, is there any benefit to doing like uh the biotin mouthwash or other fake sugars for that dry chronic dry mouth?
3: You know, I'm gonna deflect that one to my rheumatologist
1: colleagues. We're here <laughs> sure. for the lungs, Stuart.
0: Got it, got it. Sorry.
1: <laughs> All right. That was, I think that was a fair question. We at you least might... knew
0: to look at the teeth though, yeah. to look for tooth, tooth erosion.
3: <laughs> okay. Well, you're looking for signs that the patient might not have noticed as being significant.
1: Well, let's, let's move on with the case here. So you've given us really a great, like- well, Are hist- you going
0: to read the second part too?
1: I'm I'm going to read some of it. She <laughs> she told us a lot of the things that she asked for. So let's say you did that, that great review of systems. You asked about their joints and uh, you asked for weight loss, fatigue- Ulcers, you ask them if their fingers are changing colors, muscle (laughs) muscle weakness, hemoptysis. uh, And he says, uh, Al says, listen, I quit smoking several decades ago. The symptoms began long after that. Um, He never worked in mines, aerospace, shipyards, manufacturing, HVAC. He wasn't a farmer and doesn't know of any mold exposure. He has well ventilated home and office without any water damage and uh he's not like addicted to saunas
2: or hot tubs if that's such a thing he This is my favorite historical feature. <laughs> Let me read this one please. Yeah. So <laughs> Al has a lifelong hatred of birds which is just it's so specific it just makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> But enjoys several luxurious down pillows, Matthew, you may continue <laughs> that is so stupid. <laughs> he has
1: so, okay, thank you, Paul. He has a history of radiotherapy, and um he has sorry, he has no history of radiotherapy and has never taken uh, any of the medications that we just uh, talked about that might be implicated and on physical exam, we don't see any like tightening of the skin uh, in his hands or his face, no lymphadenopathy, no rashes. so uh based on these findings, um. What are we thinking now? Let's say that we've, let's say he's like had the normal stuff. uh, Like he's, he's had an echo. He doesn't have like severe pulmonary hypertension or anything. He doesn't look like he's got heart failure as the cause of his symptoms. So what are you thinking as far as what type of interstitial lung diseases might be?
3: Well, he's got one big key thing there, which are his luxurious down pillows. (laughs) Yeah. So not, not very many Americans have birds anymore. But a lot of us still have down pillows,
1: I wonder and- Paul, do you think this case was implying that he hates birds so much that he prefers <laughs> he prefers his pillows <laughs> to be wrote- filled
2: with feathers right. from dead birds Who- Who or, wrote yeah, it? you actually had to murder birds <laughs> to create his pillows, and that made him that made him happy. I think that's correct <laughs> okay Just
3: think about yourself breathing at nighttime, you know you've got your face there over your pillow, and if this pillow's full of bird feathers, you're getting tons of antigen, nice. Um, so it's a very common uh source for bird exposure for patients with chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And you know, I feel strongly that we should be asking every patient who has ILD about down products exposure and asking them to go ahead and donate that stuff and replace with fibrofil. Because it's so time hard to, to exclude, th- you know? These diagnoses are very challenging. It's
0: time to sell my stock in the MyPillow guy. <laughs> I mean that ship has sailed but like that's... Yeah.
3: And if you have a potential source that can be eliminated that easily by getting a fiberfill pillow.
1: Deal. I think we should talk about uh we I want to talk about the imaging uh for for this a little bit and the well, maybe we're jumping the gun. Maybe we should talk about labs first, Paul, and then and then go to the imaging. Do you want to talk about? I I know there's not a perfect. lot to talk about, but is there any sort of lab workup that that you would get as, let's say, the primary care? Aaron, I imagine that you're getting referrals from primary care docs after they see something on a chest X-ray or they can't figure out why someone's short of breath. So if I am suspecting ILD after, you know, I've, I've lasered in, this guy's got chronic dyspnea that I can't really put my finger on the cause. And he's got this, he, he hates birds and he loves down products. uh, So I think maybe that's it. What, what tests might be reasonable for me to order as a primary care?
3: The best thing you can do for this man is to get him a well-performed high res CT of chest. Okay. It's, it's important for you to know that it's, that high-res CT is for interstitial lung disease. There is nary an indication for high-res CT better than suspected interstitial lung disease. Uh, So high-res CT is different than your regular average CT scan that you might get without contrast. A high-res CT is always done without contrast, and it uses something called narrow beam columnation so that you get very narrow slices of the patient's lung that are in very high definition. But it's not such a great test to look for, for example, a lung nodule, because you're getting narrow slices that don't necessarily represent every bit of the patient's lung tissue, but are the good representative high definition slices. Um, some people feel strongly that we should be doing expiratory and inspiratory scans with our high res CT protocol. I would let you leave that up to your radiologist and order simply a high res CT of chest. Uh, but some people feel strongly about expiratory and inspiratory scans, prone scans, um, and just, you know, making sure that the patient is adequately taking a really deep breath so that we uh, reduce the risk that we overinterpret the study.
0: So I have kind of a technical question here for the high-res CTs. Um, what is, uh, what is the, uh, the, 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 the difference in, like, radiation exposure for high-res versus a normal chest CT?
3: That's a good question. Because there are fewer high-resolution slices, it's not substantially different in a way that should matter to your patient. Okay. It shouldn't give you pause to order a high-res study. If you have s- suspicion for ILT, you should you should certainly obtain a high-res CT. I,
1: I just wanted to point out in there was an article that I was reading to prepare for this from BMJ, and it was kind of it was geared towards I think primary care uh, and because just to go back to my my question about the labs and stuff like i'm just going to guess and and maybe this had some this had a suggestion of what we might order before we get to you and the high res ct so i think probably a plain chest x-ray should be they sh- we should definitely order that on mr alveoli but the sensitivity is just not there exactly and then lab if you one, have
3: a genuine concern for ild a chest x-ray yeah. will not do
1: no but just as you're like, if you're just seeing somebody with undifferentiated dyspnea, like you're, you're definitely going to do that. And, and the other labs that would be reasonable to get, they said would be a CBC, uh, basic metabolic panel, just to check the kidney function, the li- liver function testing. And then they said ESR, CRP. I know that's always kind of a, it, that is always kind of a uh, controversial test to order. So I, I've had mixed mixed luck ordering that, whether or not it actually helped my workup. And then if you, if you're suspecting like vasculitis or something with the kidneys, then getting a urinalysis as well would just be like kind of your basic lab workup, but you wouldn't be like ordering like ANA and, uh, Ro, La, Joe, SCL 70, all that stuff. Uh, that I would leave that in your court, Aaron. But that's, I just wanted to point that out to the audience. So just like it would be very basic labs, plus minus your urinalysis that you might get and a chest x-ray. And then the high res CT would be reasonable for us to get before we send to you if we think ILD is in the differential.
3: Yeah. I I think it's important to differentiate the lab workup and imaging workup for somebody who you suspect might have interstitial lung disease and someone that you know has interstitial lung disease. Yeah. You know, once you've got that high-res CT result that's positive for interstitial uh, lung disease of some kind, then you're going to pull out all the stops and follow American Thoracic Society criteria for IIP and go through all of the the necessary labs. And then you can get into a, you know, shouting match with other pulmonologists about whether you think a hypersensitivity pneumonitis panel is helpful and whether... (laughs) You know exactly exactly whether you should do a CRP and ESR. Yeah. The ATS suggests that most people do it once you have a diagnosis of <laughs> ILD, and at that and point, oh,
2: sorry, sorry.
3: and at that point you're going to be doing by bare minimum if you have a known ILD, you're going to do an ANA by immunofluorescence, an RFCCP, and then. If you're a little more concerned, you can do SSA, SSB, Smith RNP, and then based on your level of concern, scleroderma, myositis, or vasculitis workups.
2: And where in this process do, does this pulmonary function testing fit in? I think if someone presented with sort of slowly progressive dyspnea exertion, that might be something I would do early on. Is that where in the algorithm would that sort of fit in terms of your workup for, let's say, Mr. Um, Voi?
3: Early, absolutely early. But you have to know that if you find. Normal lung function testing that doesn't mean you don't have ILD, right? Patients with uh, ILD can have mixed picture or early disease that doesn't always show up. So you always have to interpret your, inter- your uh, lung function testing with clinical uh, picture. When you're ordering inter- lung function testing for ILD patients, you always want to get a diffusion capacity. So not just spirometry. Usually people do spirometry lung volumes, and diffusion capacity, but the diffusion capacity is particularly important because it's going to really help you find some of those people earlier who may not have significant changes on spirometry. You also may or may not have a restrictive pattern with ILD. You know, you may have a mixed obstructive and restrictive picture that looks almost normal, or you could have, uh, you know, restriction, or you could just have obstruction, Uh, especially a lot of our patients have a smoking history. Some of them also have COPD.
1: For the, yeah, the PFTs seem like they're, they are challenging to inter- interpret because there's like canceling things out. Like if they have obstructive disease from smoking and then they have restrictive disease from ILD, it just, it seems like a bit of a mess. So I, I don't know no. how I'd, I, I don't know about interpreting them. It seems, I, I would want your help, Aaron. I, I need mm-hmm. your help for those. As far as six minute walk goes, is that something that's more like once you've made the diagnosis, you kind of just track it just to monitor? their degree of like function or is that something that we you we should also think about getting
3: oh i think a six minute walk test is helpful for the workup of initial dyspnea okay you're going to find all kinds of fun stuff you know your patient walks for six minutes and at the end of the walk their blood pressure is 200 over 100 and their heart rate's 145 i don't think that's the case for me matt (laughs) but we see those people a lot we see them a lot you know does the patient have exertional hypoxemia? How seriously do I need to take this case? How how expedited does this need to be? You get so much information from that six-minute walk. Also, patients will, you know, if, if the respiratory therapist performing the study is doing it well, they're going to report what the patient says while they're walking. You know, if the patient's walking and they're saying they feel dizzy as they're walking, well, now I have more of a suspicion for pulmonary hypertension. Or if the patient is clutching their chest and complaining that an elephant is sitting on it, that's important too. So I feel like a six-minute walk is, there's just no reason not to do one. They're so helpful.
0: So in in practicality, where is a six-minute walk performed? Is it on a treadmill? Is it in your office? Is it walking around your office?
3: So the protocol that we use is the um, American Thoracic Society, European Respiratory Society protocol, which involves uh, walking on flat ground in the office on a marked course. So we walk beside them while they, or well, uh, if they need assistance or they walk unassisted.
0: So so this would be done in a pulmonologist's office is what you're saying?
3: Sure. Yeah. You could even do one in your own office. It's fairly simple. You know, the easy uh, six minute walk that's not quite formal or quite based on protocol for a research study, just pop a pulse oximeter on your patient's hand and walk with them.
1: Aaron, you mentioned something earlier about pulmonologists fighting over you know, hypersensitivity panels. And it reminded yeah. me that I think there's, is it something like 10% of patients, you, you just can't really classify their interstitial lung disease and th- they might not have a specific diagnosis, which it sounds like that might make treatment uh, challenging. Do you, do you buy that number? And it, like what, what goes into making the diagnosis? Cause it sounds like it's a multidisciplinary thing and it's not always that clear.
3: That's a very good point. So there certainly are quite a lot of patients at the end of the day who become undifferentiated, and they are certainly the folks you're going to need the support of your colleagues to talk about. Um, so the American Thoracic Society guidelines recommend the use of a multidisciplinary comi- committee for idiopathic interstitial pneumonias where you've done your initial workup, and you know it's pretty clear that this is ILD, but you're, you don't have a slam-dunk diagnosis here. These multidisciplinary committees can help to um, get your radiology colleagues, your rheumatology colleagues, sometimes your dermatology colleagues involved in making sure that a 360-degree perspective is available and that a cautious, thoughtful, evidence-based plan can be made going
2: forward. All right. So let's get back to Mr. Violi, who still has the greatest name of any of our cash-lack patients. So hes we've talked about him replacing his down pills with hypoallergenic ones, and now he has, uh, I don't know, he's sketching upsetting drawings of birds being murdered um, (laughs) instead. Um, We send it for PFTs, and they they only show mildly decreased lung volumes and and some minimal changes, really, maybe a decreased DLCO. We order a high-res CT for the patient, and this says a bunch of stuff that sounds important, but we're going to need your help interpreting. So it has upper lobe predominant reticular ground glass and central lobular nodular opacities with some interlobular septal thickening, volume loss, traction bronchiectasis, air trapping, and honeycombing, all of which from a primary care standpoint, sounds not great. Um, (laughs) That's correct. (laughs) (laughs) That's correct. (laughs) So at this point, I go into a blind panic and immediately refer him to um, a pulmonologist who actually knows what they're doing. But, But, you know, we get this CT that has sort of a lot of buzzwords looking at. So can you just talk to us a little bit about some of the patterns that might be seen in interstitial lung disease and what should raise our eyebrows and what is just kind of incidental?
3: So I think the most important thing to know is that you can have any pattern That's ever been described for interstitial lung disease in any combination with any other pattern that's ever been described. So things can get complicated really fast. What's most important is that pattern is not a diagnosis, right? So once you get a pattern, for example, of usual interstitial pneumonia, that doesn't mean you now know that this patient has idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is the disease most classically connected to that pattern. Um, when you do see that pattern, particular u- in particular, usual interstitial pneumonia, it should make you a little more concerned because um, that's a patient who probably has some advanced disease and who should be a priority for going forward. Um, and that person's risk of having an idiopathic disease that's harder for us to um, give certainty to them about how their outcomes will be, you know, it, it just makes them a more important patient to move forward with their care.
1: And that Patients pattern, with- when you say the UIP pattern, that's like the honeycombing and the traction bronchiectasis.
3: Yes. In order to have a usual interstitial pneumonia pattern, you need to have a paucity of or absence of ground glass opacities. You need to have honeycombing present. It's a peripheral predominant pattern, and it's more often basilarly distributed. Um, And the reason that it's so important is that no matter what its cause is, the pattern itself is associated with greater morbidity and mortality.
1: It doesn't sound reversible, so it sounds bad.
3: Right. Yeah. Honeycombs are sort of the end stage of fibrotic changes in the lung. And when you see them, it's usually not recoverable.
1: I like the point you're making because, like, I think the alphabet soup of the interstitial pneumonias is where I always get intimidated and lost. And so, what and let correct me if I'm wrong, but you were telling us basically we should think about the connective tissue, sarcoidosis, um, the hypersensitive sensitivity pneumonitis, and possible drugs or occupational exposure, smoking. And then, if none of that pans out, then we're thinking this is idiopathic. some sort of idiopathic interstitial lung disease, these these patterns that people describe, that is not going to necessarily lead us to one or the other. We have to put all these various pieces together. And me yes. memorizing all these different types of interstitial pneumonias is not that important because you guys will figure that out and argue over it and maybe <laughs> still sure not will. find a diagnosis 10% we, of the time. Sometimes
3: we won't. Okay. Yeah. Um, but just important things to know is pattern is not diagnosis um and even if you have usual interstitial pneumonia, which is the pattern most commonly associated with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, you have to do all of that detailed evaluation before you can call it idiopathic and then you may also want to consult your multidisciplinary committee to make sure that there are no stones you haven't turned over
1: and so we should just biopsy every Stuart you think we just biopsy everyone
3: no. No, wait, <laughs> breaks, jeez.
2: Yes. But I mean, especially if they have like a, a high oxygen requirement, that person oh. probably immediately go.
3: Seems harmless,
2: harmless. harmless.
3: Just cold stakes through my heart.
0: <laughs> Do a me.
3: Yeah. So, so biopsy for interstitial lung disease is a huge problem because uh, with your transbronchial biopsies, you almost never get enough tissue to really make a diagnosis. So when we're talking biopsy, we're talking about either, uh, transbronchial cryobiopsy, or we're talking about surgical lung biopsy, and neither of those are low-risk procedures for a patient with interstitial lung disease.
0: I was thinking VATS for all.
3: Right. Yeah. So if you do that, I I will hunt you down. <laughs> yeah. Our our multidisciplinary committee at Cashlack recommends biopsy pretty rarely.
0: Hmm. You're at the good Cashlack. <laughs>
1: All the, the cash lacks are good cash lacks. Well, let's let's talk about uh, other than telling our our good friend Al that he sh- he needs to give up his down habit or whatever obsession. What what <laughs> what treatments might we offer him? And uh, did we just,
0: ask him about hunting? We never did, did we?
1: I don't. I don't know.
0: Hmm. Sorry.
1: He d- he does He does hunt. Yeah. He he's a big duck hunter. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm getting, okay. I know what I was going to say. So albuterol nebs for everyone. That's that probably would fix this, right? Oh, oh goodness. <laughs> Inhalers. So some some people
3: with interstitial lung disease will have an airways component of their disease and they may feel better with inhaled medications, but they're really in the minority. Most people with interstitial lung disease are going to need, um, you know, uh, systemic medications to treat their disease and really we can break the medication management for ILD generally down into a few buckets as well which would include antifibrotic medicines that target the um, you know the cascade that produces fibrocytes and allows them to proliferate anti-inflammatories when we have an inflammatory disease like connective tissue disease and then um, well that's about it so oxygen
1: oxygen okay <laughs> our chronic rehab are chronic steroids part of the therapy for for ILD in general?
3: Well, it's important to know that steroid therapy for patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is associated with an increase in mortality. Because idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is not actually a disease of inflammation. It's a disease of recurrent epithelial alveolar injury and dysregulated repair. Uh, so patients with generalized ILD that you haven't fully diagnosed yet, you probably shouldn't treat that person outside of an extremist. You really need to get a diagnosis first. So it's important not to just kind of spam people with steroids.
1: Yeah. Um, I imagine a lot of these folks will have been exposed to antibiotics and steroids and maybe diuretics and things like that, not gotten better before they before they get to you, Aaron.
3: Sure. Yeah. So, and those ILDs that are inflammatory, we're usually talking about a lifelong treatment course, right? Usually, these people are are going to need something to control their disease. Maybe not, Mister Vealai uh, v- I don't V-L-I. know how he pronounces it, Mister Vealai. Right. <laughs> so, so Mister V, he, he might be able to do antigen avoidance and get away without lifelong therapy. But somebody with, for example, connective tissue diseases is, is likely to need long term treatment. So, in that situation, we want to lean heavily on our on our steroid sparing agents. And there's a lot that you may see your patients be on. We use medications like mycophenolate mofetil. We use um, azathioprine kind of rarely. We use rituximab. Uh, so those are medications that you may see your patients taking. The two antifibrotics that are important for you to know about are nintetinib and perfenidone. Um, they both are acting on different parts of the cellular signaling cascade that lead to fibrosis. and um, On those medications, about a third of your patients are going to have some kind of unpleasant symptoms, but most will not. So it's important also to know that a lot of people are concerned about the symptoms they may have on an antifibrotic, but most people don't have substantial ones and their drugs are really pretty well tolerated.
1: These These drugs are targeting delayed progression. Do they affect mortality or do they reverse anything?
3: Good question. Antifibrotic agents, Um, have been shown to to have some impact on preventing acute exacerbations of interstitial lung disease, and that itself is a good reduction in mortality. Uh, But that's pretty small. Most of what you're going to get from antifibrotic agents is a slower progression. So the average patient with, for example, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is losing about 250 cc's of lung a year. That's a lot, right? So if, but remember, this is a disease with variable progression. Not all patients um, will lose that exact amount every year. It's an average, right? Some people will have pretty stable disease for a long time and then drop off, and some will have a more slow, steady progression. Um, but so you're losing all this lung. If you're on an antifibrotic, that 250 comes down to about 115.
0: So, so Aaron, I, I got to say, when I hear the, the drug nintentinib
3: Nintetinib. I nin-
0: yeah, I, I think Nintendo. Yeah. Is that is that what you think too? Do any pulmonologists <laughs> think that? We think that. Okay, cool.
2: I, wasn't this exact joke made almost uh, whenever we were to the chess conference? I I think still so. I good, yeah. this still right. it, it, good. Yeah, it is it's still still great. The classics approve. never get old. <laughs> yeah, so let me ask a non Nintendo related question. So. When I, a little bit of the reading that I was doing, specifically for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, it mentioned one of the importance of finding the diagnosis as quickly as you can is so that you can make a facilitated palliative care referral, which I just found to be a remarkable sentence. Yes. I wonder if you couldn't speak more broadly about the role of palliative care uh, when you're taking care of interstitial lung disease. When do you, when do you call them in and sort of what points do you start thinking about involving them in a patient's care?
3: Great question. So particularly a patient with one of those usual interstitial pneumonia patterns particularly a patient with idiopathic disease where we can't do, for example, antigen avoidance or deal with systemic inflammation, the prognosis over the long term, it's its still not great. And so having a palliative care team involved with that patient through the course of their disease can very much uh, help them to manage symptoms, expectations, do goals of care planning, and there's really no time that's too early to do that. Um, So I would say that if you have a patient with with any form of progressive ILD, you might want to consider a palliative care consult, especially if that patient might not be a candidate for lung transplant if things don't go very well. I also think it's important to know that all ILD is at risk of flare, and flare of ILD is a very serious diagnosis, and that should also prompt you to consider whether a palliative care consult might be appropriate. In a perfect world, we all have cash lack palliative care on our side when we're facing serious disease, right?
1: Yeah. For the patient who's not flaring and kind of chronic on their therapy, do you refer all these patients to pulmonary rehab if it's available?
3: Oh, I love pulmonary rehab, and and you'll if you know you'll hear from your patients how great pulmonary rehab is. Um, the thing that I think it's important to tell people about uh, pulmonary rehab is that it's like boot camp, you know, it's going to whip you into shape, but then you have to maintain it. It's so common that people will go through a pulmonary rehab program, they'll come out great on the other side, and then they won't continue to do uh, what the therapist tells them they need to do at the end. Um, So particularly times when you should look at a person and say, hmm, you might need pulmonary rehab if your patient is sarcopenic, you know, if your patient is losing weight, if your patient is increasingly... Uh, less active and they're sitting in their chair most of the day and they're not going and doing things around the house. If your patient's on oxygen, pulmonary rehab can be really helpful because they do a lot of teaching with people about how to use their oxygen correctly uh, and they give them lots of breathing techniques that are helpful. So you know, pretty much anyone with serious disease may benefit from pulmonary rehab. However, we don't have very strong data on pulmonary rehab in the ILD community It's mostly from other lung diseases, but anecdotally it translates well.
1: The other thing that was, um, I'm surprised it didn't come up that yet is the GERD and IPF association. Is that important? Like, should all these people be on PPIs? Um, It's
3: important, but it's very controversial. All right. Yeah. Uh, The guidelines on this are from 2014, so they're a little old. uh, And since that time, we've had increased data coming to light that muddy the waters further. I think it may be important to say that um, we should always consider in patients with ILD aspiration pneumonitis as a part of the differential diagnosis, particularly chronic recurrent aspiration pneumonitis. Um, And we should also consider uh, acid reflux symptoms, and we should ask about them in patients with ILD, and we should probably treat them if they're present. Lower threshold than average to refer to an esophageal specialist or stomach specialist.
2: All right. Alright, let's get some closure on Mr. Violi. So let's say, uh, well, let's let's give credit where credit due. The pulmonologist orders a precipitating antibody panel because I would not know what I'm doing. And it comes back positive for avian proteins. The rest of his rheumatologic and autoimmune serologies come back. Um, not terribly exciting. So he is ultimately diagnosed with chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And he is eventually prescribed Nintendinib, which hilariously sounds like Nintendo. <laughs> it cannot be overstated enough. Um, maintains a, a close relationship with his pulmonologist. So um, give me a happy ending, Dr. Noreski. Tell me, how, how is Mr. VLI going to probably do with this new diagnosis of hypersensitivity pneumonitis?
3: Well, first, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that we diagnosed Mr. VLI with hypersensitivity pneumonitis with a, with a known trigger or exposure that he can remediate, because that's the best possible situation for a patient with hypersensitivity pneumonitis, something that you can get out of his life that he's not going to be exposed to in the future. So his prognosis is actually really good. The likelihood that he actually ends up on nintetinib is pretty low because you have to have progressive disease of any sort of progressive ILD to end up on an antifibrotic unless you have idiopathic disease, in which case an antifibrotic is your uh, initial treatment of choice. So although Mr. Uh, Ve- Veoli's prognosis is good, it sounds like he did have some signs of progression was put on nintetinib, also might want to consider you know, long-term um anti-inflammatory treatment for him as well.
1: But it sounds like he does well, so that's good. Maybe some therapy or anger management as well. I don't know. (laughs) This bird thing is really concerning. Well, he he likes the...
0: What was it? Duck Hunt on Nintendo. Yeah, um,
1: maybe yeah. that's actually a healthy outlet for him, Stuart. We we might maybe we should encourage. Well, that's I, him. why he needs I nin- I duck Hunt. <laughs> So
3: frustrating when the gun doesn't point where you think it's supposed to. Aaron, you got to hold it right up to the screen and just hit the duck.
2: Do-
1: like, come on!
0: <laughs> and it only works on CRT TVs, not the LCDs. <laughs>
2: And the dog laughs at you really you almost, you should probably hate oh, the dogs hate almost dogs. as much as you yeah. hate the duck. Yeah, yeah it's a problem. Uh, I, I also love 3% how... <laughs> of our listeners know what we're talking about at this point. <laughs> is that right? That's what I to say.
0: <laughs>
1: our demographic excuse young Paul. So uh, everybody everybody our age and I- I'm sure they know what duck uh, hunt know. is.
0: <laughs> they have to. There's no way they-
1: Duck hunt? I don't know. I don't know. All right, Aaron, can we ask you for some take-home points? This has been wonderful. Uh, can you just kind of recap some of what you want the audience to, to most remember about this?
3: Okay, uh, so take-home points, short and quippy. Most ILDs, not IPF. There are a bunch of buckets to consider. You really have to think about them all and do a detailed, prompted, thorough history and physical for anyone that you are concerned about uh, ILD for. Language is really important for this disease. Um, I think it's important not to use pulmonary fibrosis as a general term for interstitial lung disease because it's very stereotyping. If you put it into Google, you're going to get IPF information. And if you haven't made an IPF diagnosis, that's a pretty scary thing for a patient to Google. So say ILD until you know the specific. And then you can say, for example, connective tissue disease associated interstitial lung disease due to rheumatoid arthritis. Or whatever the specific diagnosis is. Chronic In Mr. case, chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis due to avian exposure. Um, So other take-home points, um, not not all patients with ILD report dyspnea. You have to be very careful that they may adjust their activity and not perceive themselves to be particularly dyspneic. Not all ILD patients have restriction. You can have mixed disease. You can have obstructive disease. Not all ILD patients cough, although most do. Um, And we should really talk about how important it is When you're making referral for your patients with ILD to consider where you're making a referral to. Because if your patient might be a candidate in the future for a lung transplant, if things don't go well, you really want to make sure you have a lung transplant center as that referral point, um, because then that's an option for your patient if things don't go well. Oh, uh, one more. It's important too. ILD is a disease of really variable prognosis. But it is all potentially super serious if you don't make a good diagnosis, right? So without a good diagnosis and treatment plan, patients really don't do well.
1: So we got we to gotta get them to you, Aaron. That's <laughs> right. You're okay, their only so hope.
3: I'll overbook my clinic just for you, Matt.
1: Stuart, did you have something? Yeah, I just have one more,
0: one more question for you. Um, why are pulmonologists always so jovial?
3: Oh, no, I don't even want to know. Why?
0: <laughs> because they see so many things that are just plain cilia.
3: <laughs> I think that might be more for GI.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Paul, you like that one? That's not even normally where we put puns. I, so like It hurt <laughs> for two reasons. Like we, It's premature and also awful. Well, I,
0: I wasn't sure if she was still going to be there for the, the intro. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's good to be
1: we'll sure. We'll have to get to the outro. All right, Ar- Aaron, thank you so much.
2: Yeah, nice work. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. I think maybe I missed that. (laughs) Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
0: That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact Matt directly at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, David Matnick, Nicole Koos, and Peter Wyckoff, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris, the Chewy Man Chew, on Facebook. Till next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham.
1: A couple episodes ago, Stuart, when you totally rewrote. I think it was hypothyroidism. People go back and listen to the outro in that one. Stuart rewrote all the words in that with synonyms uh, in his outro piece. It was hilarious. Uh, Anyway, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto.
2: And we would be remiss in not thanking the great Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music that you're currently hearing. And a special thanks also to Claire Morgan of Nodderly for editing our audio. And as per usual, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.
1: And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.